Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. Four months ago, Governor Andrew Cuomo was interviewed behind closed doors for 11 hours on the multiple claims of sexual harassment made against him this year. And now we finally know what he said. Hundreds of pages of transcripts were released this week from the Attorney General's office, which led the investigation into those claims. And there is just a lot to get through here, so let's jump right into it. With me in studio are John Campbell from the USA Today Network and Kate Lisa from Johnson Newspapers. Glad to have you both, as always. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you. So this was, I couldn't tell you the page count of all of them together. It was transcripts of Cuomo's testimony. Um, not all of the women who accused him, but a good chunk and probably the most high-profile ones. Um, so a lot of ground to cover. I just want to ask you guys first, Kate, what was your takeaway here? What, what stood out to you? So definitely, yeah, it was thousands of pages. I mean, it was um, a tremendous release. And so we did, we learned details that um, were shocking in some ways and in others, they were kind of what we had known. We saw that Cuomo really doubled down with his his tactic of deny, deny, deny. And he, with, um, with private attorney and who was leading the, um, the questioning, June Kim, uh, the investigator, he was really um, sparring back and forth with him a little bit, picking apart words. It was know. tense. It, it was tense and um, clearly on the defensive on, on some things, nitpicking about what things like girlfriend meant. In one breath, he would, uh, the former governor, would assert his, his experience as an attorney and, and like flex his legal jargon. And then in the other, um, right, he was doing that. And, but uh, I think one of the biggest takeaways that, that really shocked me was when he was talking about one of his former um, or top aides, Stephanie Benton, talking about how she would sign things for him. And, and revealing that he had lied to reporters in May of this year, that he had taken the sexual harassment, or completed the sexual harassment training. He right. said that he had completed it this year in 2021, and to Mr. Kim, said that he only completed it in 2019, and that Stephanie Benton may have auto-signed the attestation that he completed it, and that also she might have signed legislation, executive orders, other documents for him in the past. So it was it was really talk about a bombshell. Yeah, the whole thing about the bill, the the signing part of it, about Stephanie Benton signing bills for him, maybe signing executive orders, things like that, really took me by surprise. But then I had to think about it and maybe it's not that uncharacteristic. I have no idea what previous governors did. Uh, but that was something that really stood out to me as well. John, how about you? What what were your big takeaways here? Well, a, a couple things. I mean, we, we not only learned about more about the sexual harassment complaints and, and accusations, we also learned about some of the toxic culture accusations within the governor's office. I mean, there was a, a uh, very pins and needles atmosphere. The state trooper who alleges she was harassed by the governor went into detail about uh, how, you know, the governor gets what he wants and, and, you know, how he had to show up and the elevator had to be waiting for him while, um, you know, there were other detailing details of, you know, screaming behind closed doors, both by the governor and top members of his staff. And also we heard from uh, the, the medical doctor who administered the governor's uh, nasal swab for a COVID test on, on live TV. Uh, you know, she spoke about the morale within the Department of Health during the pandemic. Uh, and it was it was 
quite shocking. I mean, we knew some of this. There was a mass exodus of, of staffers, but she was also told that they were not allowed to collaborate with local departments of health, with the New York City Department of Health, which was, yeah. uh, well, I, I believe she said the Department of Mental Health at the time where the pandemic was uh, was raging in New York City. And, you know, we knew that Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio had a, a poor working relationship. I'm not sure we quite knew that it went to that level. And how did that affect the pandemic? It was my question in reading that was, if they weren't allowed to really work with these local agencies, then was the coordination really there in a way that really ha uh, would create a robust response to this virus that has killed so many people? So. And clearly not, too, because, you know, they didn't, um, they, they even said that some protocols they found out at press conferences, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So yeah, I don't know how you do that. Or, you know, why wouldn't you have, um, for, for public safety or, or health, if that's the goal, how is that the safest practice? I don't understand. Yeah, I didn't really either. And, and that whole thing is just a, another can of worms. I do want to get to, like, some of the specifics about some of the women that testified as part of this investigation. Um, first, I'll go through Brittany Camisso, just take a few minutes on this. So I, I found it interesting, part of this, the investigators were asking Brittany Camisso what she was wearing when she went into the mansion where she was allegedly groped by the governor. And at first I was reading that and I was like, oh, this is kind of rude, asking her what she was wearing, kind of like a victim blaming type of thing. And then I realized maybe it's like an identification type of thing, because as we know, with uh, Sheriff Apple's misdemeanor complaint, they used state police aerial footage, which is so interesting to me. <laughs> so that was a takeaway for me. Um, the governor, of course, said in his testimony that he definitely did not touch Brittany Camisso. He didn't touch anybody inappropriately is what he said. Brittany Camisso testified as well that the governor used to say inappropriate remarks to her. Like at one point, he commented to her she was uh, wearing a dress, I believe, or wearing pants, and he said something along the lines of, uh, show some leg or good to see you showing some leg. So that was just an interesting part to me. Um, the toxic culture, though, John, I want to go back to that with you. So Charlotte Bennett testified about this, uh, and I think the other women did testify about this as well. But there's this culture they testified in on the second floor when they were there that really um, stoked the flames of this behavior. Can you describe what we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And and the culture, essentially, you know, the governor was in office for, for 10 years by, the, by this point. And... You know, there was a, a widespread culture of fear. There was a widespread culture of, of being fearful of angering the governor, angering his top staff. Uh, there, was, there was talk about the women that he, he, you know, was known, that the governor was known to prefer blondes. We heard from uh, women like Anna Liss, who was a, a former aide to the governor, that, you know, she was moved from one side of the building to the other side of the building, and, you know, she suspected you know, it might be because of her looks or because of her, her uh, you know, how she appeared rather than her performance. And that bothered a lot of people. And you hear a lot from uh, the women in these, in these statements about how they, they felt belittled or they felt they were fearful of the, the uh, a group of aides that had become known as the mean girls. And, yes. you know, and, and you hear, you get a better sense reading these transcripts about why that bothered uh, these women so much and why uh, they felt, you know, professionally looked down upon because of it. Yeah, and the Mean Girls thing, the investigators asked the women and I believe the governor whether they had heard the term Mean Girls as a reference. And I just want to point out that is like a public thing. During the 2018 campaign, Melissa DeRosa and the governor's top aides did frequently refer to themselves as the Mean Girls 
on Twitter. So <laughs> it's not something that was made up. Um, I just have to wonder how this all played into their work there and the environment there. Um, Kate, 30 seconds for you. We have the assembly maybe wrapping up its report. Do we know anything else at this point? I don't, but tell me. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I think that's going to be the biggest thing going into next week, right? Um, we're going to be waiting to see, they're, they're going to, the members of the Assembly Judiciary Committee that were overseeing that impeachment probe earlier this year um, were, are going to review this report of what they found. So I think that will tell us even more going into next week and, and we'll have, um, I guess, even more one way or the other about where things are going. I'm on the edge of my seat. In my mind, right now, I'm not on the edge of my seat, <laughs> but metaphorically, I am. We'll leave it there. John Campbell from the USA Today Network and Kate Lisa from Johnson Newspapers. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, moving on now. The Hochul administration has released an update to the state's financial plan, and things are actually looking pretty good. These updates are released to make sure the state budget is on track, and apparently, we're doing way better than we thought. New York brought in $4 billion more in revenue than we expected back in April when the state budget was approved. And that's really, really good news because we didn't know how the pandemic would affect that revenue. At the same time, the Hochul administration says it's not enough to pad the state's coffers if we hit a recession. So a mixed bag on that one. And the person with an eye on all of this is state controller Tom DiNapoli. He's the state's elected money manager. We spoke this week about the state's finances, what they mean for you, and more. State Controller Tom DiNapoli, glad to have you back. Good to be back with you, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. So the mid-year financial update from the Hochul administration makes it seem like we're doing pretty good for the state. We have about $4 billion in extra revenue coming in since the budget passed in April. So is it as good as it sounds from your perspective? Or are we on a good track right here? Yeah, I mean, I'm the short answer to that question is yes. And that's a combination of factors. You know, certainly tax collections have been coming in uh, stronger than anticipated, personal income tax collections, sales tax collections. The big game changer, though, Dan, has been the, the infusion of federal money. That's That certainly has made the big difference in terms of balancing our budget. So for now, uh, things are looking very strong, not only for this year, but uh, as you know, we're just starting the, the budget process and looking at the numbers for future years. And based on what we're seeing right now, Division of Budget is really projecting that the, the traditional out-year budget gaps that we're used to for so many years, they don't seem to be uh, coming into play at this point. Um, whether that holds up, uh, who knows? That's why we keep a close eye on revenue and spending. It sounds like good news. So does this mean that we are back to pre-COVID levels in terms of revenue and our finances in the state, or do we still have a kind of a long road to go for recovery. I'm trying to gauge whether this is just, we're good in the moment or we're good in, I guess, the long term. Well, I would say let's not minimize the impact of the federal money and the federal money is not forever. So we have to keep that in mind. Uh, you know, when you look at something like sales tax, you know, which is a strong indicator of, of not only tax activity, but consumer confidence and overall economic activity. We, we seem to be ahead of pre-pandemic. Uh, or, or at or ahead of where we were pre-pandemic. But you look at some of the other numbers. Um, let's look at the employment numbers. Again, unemployment numbers continue to go down, which is good. But we've only grown back about 55, 56% of the jobs that were lost. So, you know, that's a concern. So I would say mi mixed uh, information, more of it is good than bad. Uh, look, the, the big factor, the big question mark still is, are we really out of it in terms of the pandemic? 
you know, should we go backward on 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 the numbers related to COVID and and pull back some of the some of the opening? You know, that's where we could see the 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 economy start to go backwards as well, and see the tax revenue go backwards. So, you know, I think we still have to be very careful uh, about what we're doing and and very closely monitor what the trends are. You know, speaking of that federal uh, spending that you talked about, the federal infusion of funds into New York. The newly passed infrastructure bill in Congress has some money there for broadband infrastructure. And your office released a report about two months ago now highlighting the digital divide in New York. We know that this exists. More than one million houses, households lack access to broadband, according to your report. So can you tell me, based on that report that you put out and now we have this money available from, from Congress, how should we target that broadband problem here? Where does the money need to go to make it better? You know, for our rural communities, the issue really is the infrastructure and, and building it out. Uh, and across the state, not only the rural communities, but urban and suburban communities, uh, households of, of lower income um, and, and senior households, generally speaking, as well, uh, that's where there has really been a big issue of access. So, you know, certainly targeting more support uh, to those at the lower end of the economic spectrum and, and doing more to build out the physical infrastructure for our rural communities, those would be the two priority areas. And again, that's where that federal money, as you point out, is gonna be very helpful. For our economy to recover, uh, certainly we learned the hardware during the pandemic. The importance of internet access is key for work, for school, you know, for education, uh, just for daily living. So uh, this is really great news that we're gonna see more of an emphasis and more help from Washington. You know, before we run out of time, I do want to get into politics just a little bit. So it seems like you're not running for governor, which you had been rumored to maybe be interested earlier this year. So you're not running for governor as far as we know. But I'm wondering, do you have a favorite in the race so far? We only have a few declared candidates, but is there anyone that you have your eye on? Well, uh, first of all, I do want to clarify, I am running uh, for state controller again. It's the best yes. job in state controller. So I'm going to stick with that. Uh, you know, look, all the names out there are uh, people I've worked with and friends of mine. Certainly the two leading candidates uh, are Governor Hochul and, and Attorney General James. Uh, uh, they're both friends, and we have a lot of work to do uh, separate from the political season. So at this point, I look forward to working with both of them and uh, looking forward to being on the Democratic ticket, whoever will be heading that ticket. But um, my focus on the political front is making sure that I get uh, to serve again and we'll let the others uh, play out their own respective uh, races and their own competition. Yeah, it's a really interesting time in New York in politics, especially among Democrats, because it seems like there is almost this like an almost split. I don't wanna say the party is split down the middle, but there's almost a split between people that are on the far left in the Democratic Party and then people considered moderates who are a little bit more in the middle. Uh, where do you fall in that spectrum of ideologies? The Democratic Party is obviously a big tent, but I'm wondering where you fall in that. Hmm. Well, I don't want I don't want to uh, make light of the question, but I probably fall somewhere in the in the middle of moderate and, and, and left. I'm probably like you know somewhere right in the middle there, which is I think where I've always been. But I, you know, look, you, you're you're identifying what is potentially a real problem for us. I, I mean, it's, the strength of the Democratic Party is our openness and having a sense of open competition. The weakness is that we often find it hard to be united. And that's been one of the issues in Washington, obviously, that has delayed uh, really you know, acting as quickly as, as I would have hoped on, on, on the Biden administration proposals. 
you know, New York is a big state. We have a lot of very talented people. It's nice to have options. <clears throat> you know, you mentioned the gubernatorial race, but I think you're going to have competition very clearly for the attorney general race. You have yes. a lot of folks lining yes. up for that. Uh, again, all friends uh, as far as the names are out there. So, you know, I'm hoping there won't be much competition for the controller nomination. But, you know, at the end of the day, as we sort this out and if the primaries continue to be in June, which seems to be the plan right now, plenty of time to regroup, because I think one of the lessons from this past election, you know, and I live on Long Island, I think, as you know, uh, Democrats should not take for granted uh, the voters or assume that because New York is such a blue state that Democrats are going to win all the time. And there were, there were significant Republican gains uh, on Long Island, particularly in other parts of the state as well. And if the Democrats do not unite, as we sort through who our candidates will be, uh, we could lose. And, 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 and to me, that's the concern. We need to keep our eye on the, on, on the big picture, which is that Democrats have so much more in common uh, than, than, than that which divides us. And we, we should spend a little less time on those divisions. And, and, and I really think the, the election results of 2021 are a wake-up call uh, that we need to get our act together, because if we don't, the voters are going to say, you know what, we're going to go with the other party. And, and I, I, I think we need to be mindful of that. Yeah, it's going to be something really interesting to watch in New York politically, at least, for those interested in following those kinds of things. But we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your insight and your perspective. State Controller Tom DiNapoli. Thanks, Dan. So we'll keep an eye out for all that. Switching gears now, Democrats are hoping to move a bill in New York to end what's called qualified immunity. That's what protects police officers from lawsuits if they do something that might not be legal otherwise, like using excessive force or searching someone without permission. New York City has already passed a limit on qualified immunity, so now it's easier to sue police officers there. But that's not the case statewide. So Democrats in the legislature are trying to pass legislation that would affect all New Yorkers, not just those in the five boroughs. But like all issues, opinions on ending qualified immunity are mixed. Daryl Camp reports. Criminal justice reform has been a source of division across the country in recent years, and at the heart of that debate is New York. It's been a major source of division here, pitting Democrats against Republicans and Democrats against each other. Those reforms are things like ending cash bail for lower-level offenses and new changes to how prosecutors build a case. And while those were big wins for supporters of those measures, they'll always tell you there's more to do in the realm of criminal justice. That conversation is already starting ahead of next year's legislative session, and a key focus for advocates is a bill that would end what's called Qualified Immunity, or QI. That's a doctrine that allows certain legal protections for government officials, like members of law enforcement, when they do things that may otherwise be illegal. And it's getting more attention now than ever while the country debates the consequences of uses of force by police, including the deaths of unarmed civilians. Assemblymember Pam Hunter, a Democrat from Syracuse, sponsors that bill. She says it isn't about attacking individual officers, but holding municipalities as a whole to a higher standard. Uh, it is untrue that officers have ever had to pay ever uh, for any constitutional violation. There is indemnification across the state where municipalities have always been responsible for any misdeeds for officers. So I think a lot of the conversation relative to personally paying out of pocket for officers, that does not happen. For some, the issue is personal. That's the case for Darlene McDay. 
She says her son Dante died behind bars from what was reported as a suicide after he allegedly suffered abuse at the hands of correction officers. McDay says she wasn't told about the alleged abuse until she got a call from someone else incarcerated at the facility. So he said that they called for medical attention because they felt my son was having a seizure. Um, he was sitting on his bed, not really able to move and staring, you know, in kind of staring into space. So several of the people next to him called for medical attention. And when the guards went into the room, they started beating him. McDay says that some of the officers involved are still working to this day and haven't been held accountable. That's why opponents of QI are looking to end it. Senate Deputy Majority Leader Mike Gianaris, a Democrat, says that qualified immunity can make some law enforcement officers feel like they're above the law. Now there is an unspoken argument by opponents of reform. And that argument is the cost of public safety is police violence. That's what they're saying. They don't say because it, it sounds ridiculous, but ultimately that's what their argument is. If you want to feel safe, you got to let the police beat someone who doesn't deserve it. Or you got to let the police kill somebody who doesn't deserve it. Because God forbid they feel restricted from doing that, they might not do their jobs they're supposed to be doing. But some in law enforcement say the issue of qualified immunity is not as simple as it sounds. For Albany Police Chief Eric Hawkins, who is sometimes at odds with criminal justice advocates, he sees the issue from both sides of the conversation. The uh, idea of doing away with qualified immunity has negative connotations in law enforcement because it's seen as it's taking away some, some protections that officers have when they're out there doing the right, trying to do the right things for the right reasons and things and a mistake is made or things go sideways. And so I'm just seeing that way. I, I, so, so I see it both ways. I can see why there's concern from the community with, with, um, with this whole idea, uh, idea. And, you know, the community wants accountability. Hawkins did not say if he was for or against ending qualified immunity, but he did say that a critical part of law enforcement is the relationship with the community and the level of trust that comes with that. And others agree, but don't think ending qualified immunity is the right approach. Senate Republican leader Rob Ort says the issue is political and is just another step in a series of attacks on law enforcement from Democrats on the far left. The policies that have been enacted specifically around public safety and look no further than this bill we're talking about right here to end qualified immunity is a direct attempt and attack to against our law enforcement. And the net result of that attack, the net result of these policy changes have been less safe, less safe communities for people of all backgrounds. While Democrats in New York have led the charge on the state's most controversial criminal justice changes, Republicans have consistently pushed back, like state Republican chairman Nick Langworthy, who says those reforms target the integrity of law enforcement. They put their lives on the line every day to keep the people of the state of New York safe. And so far, what we see is a battery of uh, pieces of legislation that want to essentially chase a lot of people out of the business of law enforcement that want to, you know, sacrifice the safety and security of our officers, and they want to put the criminals first. But Hunter, who sponsors the bill to end QI, says that's not what the bill is about. Officers are sued all the time in New York over constitutional violations, and those lawsuits can pay out millions of dollars. The bill, she says, is about creating a uniform standard across the board. 
we need to make sure not just the hiring practices are okay, but the training that's involved with interfacing with the public is where it needs to be so people are not discriminated against, that there is not excessive force or regular you know, force happening, or even in some cases, sexual abuse happening. And for some, it's not just about a uniform standard, but a higher one as well. McDay, whose son died, says if that were the case, there may have been repercussions for the officers allegedly connected to his death. I wondered with my son's case, why wasn't anyone held responsible? He was obviously beaten. He was obviously tortured. These four officers basically made up a story that they went into my son's cell, they responded to a medical emergency, they went into my son's cell, um, and they tried to make up a story that he did this to himself. Others say the standards for law enforcement are already high and do enough to keep them accountable, or again. If they did something and you can get them criminally, the police officer in, in Minnesota um, that, that killed George Floyd, no, no two ways about it, he's going to jail. Justice was served. Not, not, no amount of anything is going to bring George Floyd back, but justice was served. The system held that police officer accountable. That bill is currently in committee in both houses of the state legislature, with Democrats hoping to bring it to the floor for a vote. Meanwhile, Pam Hunter, the bill's sponsor, says that it does have a good chance of becoming law. There is definitely conversations with leadership in my house relative to support for this qualified immunity bill. As you know, you know, even at the Supreme Court level, uh, at the presidential level, that there's conversations about qualified immunity, uh, that this is a harmful doctrine and that there is no basis of law for this. So this is not just a New York state, you know, wanting to push more reform. This is something that is having a conversation across the country about doing the right thing to protect people's constitutional rights. For New York Now, I'm Daryl Camp. So we'll see how that shakes out when lawmakers return to Albany in January for the next legislative session. But we'll leave it there for this week. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.